Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. If you want to open your Bible to Revelation 7, we're in part 9 of our series, part 9 of 2000. I'm joking. Can you believe we're about a third of the way through? And we said at the beginning of the year, seemed like the Lord was directing us to the book of Revelation. Revelation singular, not revelations, but revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we said, we're going to take an extended time into the fall and look at this chapter by chapter for several reasons. One is many people avoid it. It is that scary book. It is that difficult book. Or we have popular ideas around it that are really confusing. So we decided to plunge right into it, look at it chapter by chapter. And as I've been saying, we do, we look at it about three weeks and then we have an interlude and we have someone share what God is doing. We have a a now word. So that's been our pattern. And here we are in chapter seven, part nine. And I just wanted to take a moment here to give a big picture view. The weeks go by, and I just want to keep the, the big idea in mind, what this book of Revelation is about. And I think that's helpful for people that are joining us along the way. First of all, the book of Revelation is a prophecy, and it says that in chapter 1. It is a prophecy that describes God establishing his kingdom through his messianic king, the Lord Jesus And so the book of Revelation, all 22 chapters are really about him and who he is and what he's doing in the church and what he's doing in the earth. And all of human history is moving toward its consummation in him. And so that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's really not about strange creatures or end time events. Predominantly, the major theme is the Lord Jesus Jesus Christ is Lord over history and over all the nations. We looked in chapters 2 through 3, and we saw really some tender letters where Jesus is walking among those lampstands, those menorahs, those churches that symbolize God's people. And there's seven letters that were written for them in chapters 2 and 3. And they were letters of love and correction, and they were promises And they were a call to endure. And then we looked after that, chapters 2 and 3, we looked at chapters 4 and 5. And they were riveted on God, the holy creator of the universe, chapter 4. And then the lamb, the slain and resurrected lamb, the Lord Jesus, in chapter 5. And we saw how everything in the subsequent chapters flows out of that. Jesus' love for the church. God is the holy creator of the universe who's worshipped by all angels, all of creation. And then this idea that Jesus is actually the only one who can initiate and fulfill God's plan in human history. The breaking open of those seals. We saw last week in chapter 6. We made it through, did we not? 
Hallelujah, we made it through chapter six where that switches gears a little bit and we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which is often misunderstood. And we saw a group of martyred saints worshiping the Lord. And then we saw the day of the Lord being heralded and the whole cosmos, all of creation was responding to that. And we saw that the day of the Lord causes the disobedient to tremble and actually hide hide in caves and say, deliver us, save us from the day of God's wrath and the wrath of the Lamb. But there's good news in this as well. When the Lord comes, and the Lord will come, and the Lord will right everything, and the Lord will establish his kingdom and vanquish his enemy and vanquish evil and oppression of all people. So it's a day of judgment. It's also a day of redemption, just like the book of Exodus. So here we are. Chapter 7, and again, the whole point of this, we're going to be talking about the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, and I don't want to get lost in all the details. The point that we end at over and over is this book is meant to inspire worship. Are you finding that? you finding that in some new ways that revelation is meant to inspire worship in the heart of the church. It's meant for us to see God, to see Christ, in the power, the beauty of the Holy Spirit. And then it's meant from that place of worship to send us out to be witnesses, just like Jesus said in Acts 1.8. So today, let's look at Revelation 7, 1 through 17. And we're going to be answering a question that was actually raised in chapter 6, verse 17. And it was in light of all of the various things that were unfolding at a future event. 6.17 said, who can stand? And so today we're going to see who can stand. Actually, that word stand is used multiple times in chapter 7 to show, in fact, who is able to stand when these things are unfolding on the earth. And it might be rather surprising. I have to refrain from geeking out at particular points because I could chase this little bunny down this trail here or here. Chapter 6 was like a prelude. It was almost like, let's say, a trailer. And so you're catching all that the the book will reveal and unfold in chapter 6. So some of you might scratch your head and say, wow, there's some repetition, there's some overlap. What is happening here? That is the point of prophetic literature. These are visions. This is not a linear timetable that's laid out. This is God through Christ and an angel to John revealing through symbols and signs what's going to happen in the first century and at the great day of the Lord that's coming, which we do not know when it is. So today we're looking at this question, who can stand? And it's in fact going to be those who are standing before God. We're going to see in chapter 7 verses 1 through 8, we're going to see one group of people, the 144,000. We're going to look at that, so answer some questions. And then we're going to see a second group, a multitude before the throne. I'm going to read the text. And just so you know, when we get to verses 4 and following, there's some repetition. So I'm not going to repeat the same thing over and over I'm going to just mention the names of these tribes rather than the same phrase over and over again. All right? 
So reading Revelation 7, beginning at verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on earth or sea or against any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage earth and sea, saying, do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. Verse four, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of Israel, the people of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Naphtali, the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Simeon, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Issachar, the tribe of Zebulun, from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, and from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 sealed. Verse 9, after this I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God singing amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these robed in white and where have they come from? I said to him, sir, you are the one who knows. Then he said to me, these are they who have come out of the great ordeal, the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. This is why there's a blessing in reading it aloud. As the first century church did, this whole 22-chapter scroll went through the churches of Asia Minor and they would read it out loud probably quite often. So we're looking at two groups of people. The first is found in verses 1 through 8. And what we're going to see in verses 1 through 8 is that God has sent angels to prevent some evil forces from their destructive mission until Christians are given divine protection, the seal that secures their faith. So verses 1 through 3. This, the winds that are held back. We've talked about time and time again that the book of Revelation 
is inspired by prophetic literature from the Old Testament. And so it's just filled, it's shot through pictures and images and references. And this is yet another one of those. Again, this seems kind of strange or foreign to our minds. The idea of angels being put in charge of the forces of nature. But this is a recurring theme in the book of Revelation. It mentions also the four corners of the earth. There's four angels, the four corners of the earth. So does this mean that the Bible teaches flat earth theory? What do you think? Some of you are saying, yes, that is so important to me. Friends, it does not teach flat earth theory. This was figurative, poetic language that was used in the first century world. Think about the directions on a compass. The north, the east, the south, the west. And so the point of this to the ancient mind was everywhere. All to the north, all to the east, to the south, to the west. You think about Acts chapter 1. There was a fourfold commissioning of the disciples in every direction, beginning with Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. The same kind of thinking here. Whenever you talked about fours, it meant every reach of the planet. As a matter of fact, the scriptures in Isaiah 40 talk about the sphere of the earth. So, sorry, there is no flat earth theory here. The Bible is not a science book. Right, So if you go to it foisting your modern scientific mind on it, you're going to be disappointed. That's not the point. The point of the scriptures is to reveal God and Christ and salvation. So there can be debate, but I just had to fit that in there. This is not a subtle argument for flat earth theory. The angels here holding back destructive winds. What is that? In the prophets, it speaks of winds blowing. Hosea says in chapter 13, verse 15, that an eastern wind would blow from the desert and that it would dry up rivers and sources of water. And this would be a sign of the end time. We're going to experience this later today, aren't we? The winds up to 20, 21 miles an hour. You can think about that fierce, hot wind that's being spoken of figuratively. These angels are being commissioned to hold back these destructive forces so that what can happen? Verse 2, so that the seal of the living God can be impressed on the people who are here on the earth during this time, during the great day of the Lord. Some of you have read the book of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 9 talks about this. And so John, having again the Old Testament scriptures pouring in his mind, God can call that up and show him visions that are rooted in Old Testament scripture. In Ezekiel 9, a similar thing is happening here. God is about to judge the people, and he reveals to Ezekiel that he's going to, in the spiritual realm, put a mark on the forehead of those who've been faithful to God and steered away from idolatry. And so the same thing is happening here. You can look at this and see it in Scripture. Think about the Exodus story. What happens? The homes are marked, aren't they? So that the judgment of God passes over those who are marked and their homes and protects them. The same kind of thing is being signified here. 
It's the seal of the living God. Let's just sit with this for a moment. It's rather beautiful to think about this. And this was true for the first century believers, but it's also true at some point in human history. We're going to see the day of the Lord will come. And the scriptures say it's a sobering moment when it happens. It will be a day of great discipline for the nations, but it will be a day of protection for God's people who are there. What does it mean to be sealed? The text doesn't really go into it, but again, using scripture to interpret scripture is one of the keys to the book of Revelation. The word picture is like this ring I have on my right hand right here. It has a little insignia on it. In the ancient world, that's precisely how it worked. And so what is being revealed in this is that these believers during this time are receiving the insignia of God on their foreheads. And of course, it's figurative language. It's not like God punching you in the forehead or impressing. The point is you're marked. There's a sign on you in the spiritual realm that says, God, this belongs to God. This person, body, soul, and spirit belongs to God. We're going to see later on in the book of Revelation at 22, verse 4, that God's name is actually written on the foreheads of believers. So it is the name of God written to protect the people. Now we'll also see, do you remember in chapter 1 I said that it's like there's two parallel things that are happening through the book of Revelation. One is the Lord's kingdom, Goodness, righteousness, peace, transformation, power in the Holy Spirit, obedience to God. And then there is a parallel kingdom, a kingdom of Satan. And so we'll find counterfeit after counterfeit in the book of Revelation as it unfolds. This is another one of those. We'll find in Revelation 13, there's the mark of the beast. And so there's a mark for Christians the name of God written on their foreheads, and then Satan and his kingdom will come and actually mark unbelievers who've said no to God, who've refused the kingdom of God, and they are marked in the spiritual realm. Where do you want to be? I'm choosing the previous, right? Lord, mark me. Put your Holy Spirit tattoo on me. Speaking of that, Ephesians 1 says that Christians are actually marked with the Holy Spirit. You can look there, you can thumb over there in your Bible, look it up on your phone, I don't have it on a slide, but not only are believers receiving the mark, the name of God, but it also speaks of the Spirit of God. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says this, in him you also, when you had received the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in Christ, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of your inheritance toward redemption as God's people to the praise of his glory. So friends, there is a marking that happens when we're in Christ. We'll see in a moment that we're clothed in Christ, but we bear the name of God Again, I don't know how all this works. No one does, but we want to receive the mark of God, the mark of Christ Jesus. I remember my daughter, Mia, who just turned 18, 
one of her first prophetic words was from Revelation 22.4. And so ever since then, maybe three years ago, that has become a family prayer. Lord, write your name on our foreheads and let us see your face. Some of you can use that prayer. Pray that for your family. Revelation 22.4. It's a beautiful prayer. And we cling to that prayer for Mia and for our family. Lord, write your name on her forehead. Lord, let her see your face. And we're clinging to that as a promise from the Lord. And I would urge you to do the same thing so that you can see this moves from just kind of learning some things about the Bible, but to actually praying it. It is immensely practical. Revelation was meant to be read, worshiped through, and prayed. And so we take texts like that and we say, Lord, put your mark on us. Lord, let us see your face. I pray this for my children. I pray this for my friends who may not even know you. Pray this for prodigals. Lord, write your name on their foreheads and let them see your face. These 144,000 are sealed. Who in the heck are these people? You wondering that? Who are these people? And we know that there's some strange teaching out there. Jehovah's Witnesses and others have taken this 144,000 and developed ideas around it that are just inaccurate. Friends, like the rest of the book of Revelation, it is symbolic. There's really two ways of looking at this. And one is that it's the literal nation of Israel. And so these 144,000 are being mentioned. And why is it 144,000? You've got 12 tribes. 12 times 12 times 1,000. Some of you who aren't mathematical, like myself, just lost me. Again, figurative language. 12 is the number of the Old Testament tribes, the patriarchs, right? We encountered this earlier. And 12 in the New Testament is the number of the apostles. And so really what's being connoted here is this is the complete people of God. And then the vision throws in times a thousand. So it's 12, the saints of the Old Testament, times the saints of the New Testament, times a thousand. And we encountered that earlier in the ancient world, a thousand was a whole lot. Now we're talking about massive numbers, bigger than that. But for them, it was a large number of people symbolically that are being communicated about. And we'll encounter this later. It's the church. Jesus says in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight that the people of God would become new Israel, and that they would sit on the 12 thrones. So there's something being explained here. Paul says in Galatians 6 that the church is the Israel of God. We encounter this in 1 Peter 2, 9. We've seen this many times, that the church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Now, some of us might think, well, oh, the church replaces Israel. That is not what is being said. If you read Romans 9 through 11, the church, the Gentiles, are grafted into Israel. So there's no displacement. There's no replacement at all. It's a joining of faithful Jews 
and the rest of us. And so that's what's being communicated here. These 144,000 that are sealed. I could give all kinds of examples here that it's not a literal description of Israel. But I'm not going to do that. There's no order. There are certain things left out. If you'll see, who's the first tribe that's listed at verse 5? It's Judah. Why do you think that tribe of all the others is listed first? Jesus, the lion from the tribe of Judah, which we've encountered in chapter 5. So these are the people of God led by the Lamb of God. And again, there's no order after that, really. It's just designating. What's interesting at verse 9, how are we doing? Doing okay? You like this? I, I find this stuff fascinating. I hope you do too. Again, we're trying to read it and approach it with fresh eyes and a new way to see, yes, there's some peculiar things in this book, but it's a book of worship. It's a book about Jesus, a book about his people that's meant to embolden us. At verse 9, we've seen the folks who are believers, who are sealed and protected on the earth, and now the scene switches. Verses 9 through 17, there's a a scene of worship. There's another group of people, a countless multitude, a multi-ethnic multitude before the throne. Let's look at this. Verse 9, after this, John looks. There's a great multitude that no one could count. So the hundred and 44,000 could be counted to some extent, but friends, this is a view into heaven where no one can count the number of this. I put a slide up here, put a slide together of a massive, multi-ethnic, diverse group of people. They're actually in worship. They're not in heaven around the throne. Sorry to disappoint you, but these are thousands of people that are gathered. And the text says, these are people from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, and all languages. What we're seeing here is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 12. Do you remember how that promise went? The Lord had him look up at the nighttime sky and said, I am going to make your people This numerous. In fact, I'm going to make you a nation, a nation that will be innumerable, uncountable. And through you, Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to bless the nations of the earth. What we're seeing here is a glimpse of that being fulfilled. The gospel going not just a particular group of people, the Jewish race, the Jewish people, but all tribes, all peoples, all languages. It's quite a vision here. This is God's vision. What are they doing? They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Do you remember the question earlier? Who can stand? It's the same verb here. These can stand before the throne of God and before the Lamb. Friends, this is God's vision. I mentioned in previous weeks the idea of diversity Drawing people from different nations and walks of life together is not man's or woman's idea. This is God's vision. 
Amen? And God will undo Babel, the confusion, the fragmentation of the human race through Christ. And there's something stunning about this. I want us to think about this for a moment. There are nations and tribes and tongues and peoples for various reasons, but one, perhaps, is to demonstrate the beauty and glory and majesty of God through human flesh. Why are there so many people and why do they look so different and why do they do things differently? Why do they worship and pray? And It's like we're a prism through which God's glory radiates. The Lord shines through Asian people in a particular beautiful way. The Lord shines through Latino people in a particular way, through their languages, through African people. Lord, it is the beauty of God on display before his throne in worship. Is that magnificent? The beauty of God through the diversity of people. Yet they're all unified in Christ, right? I don't want to belittle human efforts, but friends, this is not a human mandate. This doesn't happen because the media hammers people in the head and says, be diverse, get on diversity committees, do these, have diversity training. I was on a diversity committee at Wesleyan. This ain't it. This is diversity in Christ through the Holy Spirit, through the gospel. And friends, it's the only way in the future for the nations to be unified, for people to not just tolerate each other, but to love each other deeply. And friends, it's going to happen here at this church in new ways in the coming days. And we're not going to foist it on people or create great effort around it. We're going to worship together. And that's what brings people from various nations and walks together. They're robed in white, which signifies, we saw this earlier, they're unified through the shed blood of Christ. They're clothed in Christ and his power. They're waving palm branches, which we may do next week. We'll have to to see. This just symbolizes victory and festive joy. So here, all the nations before God are waving palm branches, saying, you are victorious and we are filled with joy. We've come through great suffering, but now... We're filled with joy. You remember in John 12, as Jesus, the king, was coming in to Jerusalem, they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The same kind of festive joy is happening here. They're celebrating the salvation and lordship of God. Verses 11 and 12. Seen worship by this multitude. Now there's worship by the angelic host in 11 and 12. Look at verse 11. Again, this is immensely practical. This is the liturgy of heaven. Liturgy is basically the way people worship. And so we're getting a glimpse into heaven. How do the people there worship? How do the angels worship? Look at the verbs here at verse 11. They stand around the throne. What's the next one? They fall on their faces and they worship. So you can imagine, we've heard Jesus said in Luke 15, 10, 
that there's a rejoicing in the presence of the angels when one sinner repents and turns to God. Think what happens when there's a countless multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The angels are celebrating the power of God's salvation among the nations. Let's end with this. Look at verse 13. Again, there's so much to look at. How did they worship? Why did they say the things that they did? Friends, it was absolutely God-centered. They sang to God about God, and that's why our worship team is utilizing much of Revelation, because we sing to God about God in the presence of God, and we get caught up in that, and it changes us. It's wonderful to sing about other things, but singing the scriptures, singing what they did the way that they did, that doesn't mean we just sing from the book of Revelation, but there's something that calibrates us. Sing to God, about God. We did that this morning, did we not? The atmosphere changes. The holy presence of God comes. Let's end with this here. The saints are in God's presence. It's an interesting question. That verse 13, it's a rhetorical question. One of the elders who's there in the presence of God says to John, who are these? And where they come from, and John basically says, you know, I certainly don't. And the reference is made that these are, at verse 14, those who've come out of the great ordeal. What's your Bible say? Does it say tribulation? Same word, it could be ordeal or tribulation, period of great suffering. And friends, there's all kinds of confusion around this. We can't go into it in great detail, but Jesus talked about a time of great tribulation, unlike any other time that would one day break out on the earth in Matthew 24. He talked about it. John says later on in Revelation chapter 13 that there will be an antichrist leader who will rise up as a beast and will make war against the saints. So there is a time of great tribulation, but we saw in chapter one, do you remember what John said? He said, I'm your brother in the kingdom and in tribulation. So friends, this idea that the tribulation is just out there, but it hasn't started, John was saying it started in the first century. He said, I'm your brother in Christ, in the kingdom and in tribulation. So like many other things, there are moments of intensifying tribulation, and the day will come, and we'll get into this later, but friends, there is no secret pre-trib rapture, all right? That is part of the false teaching that swirls around the church. It's only a couple hundred years old, but it is absent from the text, the idea that the people of God are raptured out when things really get bad. Do you know where that idea was born? In the West, 200 years ago, because Westerners don't like to go through really hard times. If you read the rest of the book, can you imagine what Jesus would have said? Hey, you're going to be drawn out before the suffering gets really bad. He would say, I'm going to the cross to die and shed my blood. And then his followers, Paul and others. Can you imagine saying to Paul, Paul, when it gets really bad, you're gonna, God's going to deliver you. No, Paul was prepared. He said, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. We'll get into this later. 
but this is not suggesting at all that there's some kind of secret rapture. We'll, we'll talk about this. First Thessalonians 4 does say there is a rapture. It uses this word that talks about a, a catching up. But friends, it's at the end. So if you're holding on to this idea that believers get helicoptered out before it gets really bad, lose that idea. The scriptures make it abundantly clear. Now, what are the scriptures saying? We're marked, we're protected, we're sealed. Whoever is alive when this stuff goes down will be protected by God and they will see the glory of God in the earth like never before.